Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, should more of America's democratic allies possess nuclear weapons. And I'm joined now by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Josiah Bunting III, president of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation in New York City, former superintendent of the Virginia Military Institute, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Sai, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Okay, so the focus of this issue of Strategica, should more of America's allies possess nuclear weapons? Let's start here. We are just now shy of 70 years from the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which came about fairly quickly after the development of nuclear weapons. In the 1940s, one could be forgiven for thinking that we were crossing the threshold into some new reality, which we certainly were in in some sense. But yet here we sit almost seven decades later, and those weapons have never been used again. Why? What happened? I think the uh, possession of those uh, weapons uh, is, is, what should I say, sterile. That is to say, their utility is as a guarantor of our ability to respond, that is to say, the United States, uh, to a nuclear attack upon ourselves or probably any of our close allies. Uh, <clears throat> the effect of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs has been, as I said, profoundly chastening. Uh, it makes one think a little bit of the fact that uh, during World War II, with a couple of small exceptions, gas was never used because of the uh, remembrance of the horrific consequences of gas during World War One. So I think that's uh, basically the, the reason they have not been uh, used since then. Uh, I think also uh, both sides, if I may use that, that phrase, understand that the use of uh, any form of nuclear weapon, tactical nuclear weapons uh, emphatically uh, included, automatically invites uh, a response which is itself almost certainly nuclear. So I think, that, I think that's why we have not used these, uh, these weapons. And you talk in your piece at Strategica about the dangers of miscalculation, specifically when it comes to nuclear weapons. Is that, yeah. is that an argument for trying to restrict nuclear proliferation across the board, or is that an argument for really focusing on restricting proliferation amongst certain kinds of regimes. In, in other words, do you have to worry more about miscalculation with a nuclear Pakistan, for example, than you would if you had a, a nuclear Japan? Uh, certainly. Uh, I think the current participants, if I may say so, in the nuclear family all understand that. And I think that uh, operates as a very strong prophylaxis against further uh, disbursement of nuclear weapons. Uh, I think myself of the, uh, I wouldn't call it proliferation, but of the widespread dissemination of tactical nuclear weapons among the European uh, NATO countries. 
Uh, I think uh, the use of any nuclear weapon uh, by Russia or by any of her former allies, some of which are members of uh, NATO, uh, I, I just don't see that happening unless uh, they get into the hands of uh, people who are non-rational, according to any calculus that we uh, in the West would employ. So uh, I, I seriously doubt that we will see the use of nuclear weapons uh, anywhere with the conceivable exception of um, uh, the Middle East. Uh, I mean, we've, we've looked at very carefully, all of us have, the behavior of these people who call themselves ISIS. Uh, I would think that would be uh, the most likely candidate to actually em employ nuclear weapons. And, and what's the difference in the Middle East? Is it the fact that a, a group like ISIS or maybe the, the regime in Tehran, is it the fact that there's an ideological commitment that could conceivably overwhelm the rational calculation that wins out in these other parts of the world? I couldn't put it better. Uh, the ideological, the quasi-religious slash ideological commitment, uh, it seems to me, uh, particularly what we see in the last two or three months, uh, is so overwhelmingly strong that uh, it defies, it seems to defy any, uh, any rational consideration of the consequences uh, of using nuclear weapons. You know, in, in the piece I, I wrote, I also stressed two other things, um, which seems to me to be, which seems to me to be pertinent uh, today, namely the fact that uh, the occasion for a war is very different from the cause of a war. Uh, wars uh, so often tend to believe, tend to begin in ways that we uh, do not expect. And uh, part of that has to do with our failure to look very earnestly at the consequence, or, or rather at the characteristics of a prospective uh, enemy. And I think that's a very, very powerful, very potent uh, lesson for us always to, uh, to, to consider. I might also uh, take a shot at a target of opportunity, if I may, yeah. We elect we elect presidents and we elect administrations. We elect the American regime ordinarily for reasons which have nothing to do with the ability uh, of our leaders uh, to uh, assess uh, thoughtfully and carefully and uh, even imaginatively uh, the likelihood of wars coming and how they should be handled, how threats should be handled. In other words, uh, it seems to me that now, at this time in world history, we need to be looking very searchingly uh, at presidential candidates in their intellectual and moral and emotional uh, quality with a view towards this kind of thing presenting itself in the future. Well, uh, let me ask you the, a question that corresponds to that. Um, what do you make of the argument – it was taken up by both of your fellow contributors to this issue of Strategica – that the, the current president, that the Obama administration, even though it's been uh, dedicated to reducing the number of nuclear weapons in the world, is actually making their increase more likely by standing back in a lot of the world and thus making many of our allies think, well, we're just going to have to take care of ourselves. Uh, is that a persuasive argument to you? 
I think it is a persuasive argument. Uh, the great generation of American political and military and civic leaders, uh, so far as I am concerned, was a generation uh, that led us from 1940 to 1950. Uh, we were uh, both blessed and uh, fortunate uh, to be... Uh, governed and led by people who had what you and I would call judgment, farsightedness, settled wisdom, uh, their, what should I say, their, their intellectual equipment tend to subsist at the intersection of what we call character and, uh, and intellect. Right. Uh, they, they seem to have a very strong sense of how to employ force when force would be required, and at the same time, uh, uh, a way of establishing credibility with the people of this country and with our enemies, which uh, we simply don't have the ability uh, to project anymore. Uh, the current president uh, is an earnest, uh, well-meaning uh, person, but he is not a strong executive. He does not really know how to lead, uh, and, and we're seeing the consequences of it now. So you mentioned just a moment ago um, the, the need for uh, America to establish a presence overseas and establish a, a deterrent effect. How do we do that in situations like the one you mentioned earlier, where you have in the Middle East, for example, actors who are more <laughs> motivated by ideology than a conventional cost-benefit analysis? What's, what's the policy response to that? Well, I think, uh, first of all, whatever policy uh, you announce, whatever policy you uh, attempt to explain and to communicate to a prospective or actual enemy, uh, must be underwritten by a firm understanding on the part of that enemy that you will do what you say you are going to do. Right. And we have the uh, example uh, two and a half years ago of a president asserting uh, that the use of gas, continuing use of gas in any form uh, by the regime uh, in Syria will invite uh, an overwhelming uh, response by the United States and her allies. And I think to some extent uh, our reputation as a guarantor uh, has been uh, compromised, perhaps even fatally, by that. And uh, I think so far as the prospective use of uh, nuclear weapons by uh, a regime which does not depend on rational calculations, a religious re regime of some sort, uh, I think they must understand, must be made to understand, that that would invite uh, for them a catastrophic uh, response uh, no question asked. And here, uh, it seems to me, uh, we, we need uh, qualities uh, in an administration, president, his principal advisors, uh, which, which uh, sustain the expectation that these people will do what they say, what they say they're going to do. So I, that, that, that would be my answer. It's a little bit long-winded. So the, the, the final question that I'll put to you, and the answer to this may be suggested by some of the things you've already said, but I've asked every member who contributed an essay to this issue the, the following. I noted at the top, almost 70 years now since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 
looking forward, uh, what would you? How would you place the odds that we make it another seventy years from here without the use of nuclear weapons? Uh, very, uh, very long odds. I think uh, seventy years—that's uh, two and a half biblical generations. I think the likelihood of uh, the nuclear weapon, a nuclear weapon in some form, being used uh, is very strong. All right. Our guest has been Josiah Bunting III, president of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation in New York City, former superintendent of the Virginia Military Institute, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of the group by visiting strategica at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Sai, thank you for joining us. From the Greek word uh, strategos, meaning general. Indeed. Indeed. Sai, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.